Hi, welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Crystal Fault, I'm the editor of the Toolkit. And my guest today is director Alejandro Landis, uh, talking about his wonderful new film, Manos, which is being put out into theaters by Neon, which is having a wonderful year, uh, September 13th. And, uh, you know, I, I saw this film, Sundance was its real premiere, right? It's the first time it got showed, right? Yes. And I don't, it, it was it was one of those wonderful discoveries, not just because it was a very powerful film, but it was, uh, partially your filmmaking, partially Mika Levy's score. It was like something that was like out of, it felt like this thing was like inventing cinema. It was, it was a beautiful, beautiful film. And I was expecting something far more based on the fact uh, it's so political. I was, I was expecting something that was far more of like a, almost like a history lesson of what's going on in, in, in Colombia. I, I, I'm wondering just as a background though, because I, I, before we talk about the filming, this does seem to be very much inspired by and, ground, and, and grounded in what's going on in, in terms of the Civil War, right? I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, because I feel like we have to understand that and our American audience has to understand that to, to realize where you went with it. Well, yeah, Monos comes from, uh, kind of comes from the gut, comes from several places. I grew up in a Colombian family, but in exile, mainly due to the violence that Colombia suffered for so many, many years now, you know, 60 years of war with so many different fronts, right? You have a paramilitary, you have guerrilla, you have the state, you have the narcos, you have foreign intervention with the U.S. presence, um, you've had Mexico. I mean, you've had so many different actors in this war that it's not one of those clear-cut wars like we see in maybe in the more clearly drawn battle of uh, World War II, um, whether you're with the Germans or you're against them, and, and simplifying, but... Uh, this one, there was a there was that so-called fog of war, kind of more similar to what I guess today uh, we see Syria and conflicts like that, and um, where the alliances shift so quickly, you don't really know where you stand. And so, I I felt like I hadn't seen a, a war film from a country like Colombia, um, and you know you see it many times from the more imperial powers, a war film from the English, from the French. Uh, from the Soviets, maybe the Japanese, the Americans, but what about a country like Colombia and, and experiencing a war from um, the rear guard, not the front lines? And so, uh, yeah, it works within that genre, the genre of a, of a war film, but playing with time as well. And it, it, I think in a way it came from what's happening now in Colombia, but also from... Um, from looking to make a film that was directly in contrast to what I had made previously, which is a man in a wheelchair um, in his mid-50s whose body is a sort of prison to the soul and, and it's, about, it's about containment and restriction. And here I wanted something that kind of exploded through uh, that time in your life where, where you know, there's a huge effervescence, which is kind of adolescence. Yeah. What's fascinating about it, and we were talking about it before we started rolling, is is that you know where we end up here is we end up with these uh, children soldiers on top of a mountain, mm. and it's, it, it, it's and even though it's clear that it's inspired by things that are going on in in your home country, um, it is removed from a certain specificity. It's removed from a certain time almost. It's it's, and I have to imagine. 
uh, part of that, even when you just thought about this, is, is even just starting on the top of this mountain, like above the clouds, is, mm-hmm. is, is, is a very interesting introduction to, to how you want to tell this. Well, yeah, there's a, it comes from two places. It comes from real life stories where um, kidnapped people have been given to the lowest rung of the ladder um, which many times in these military or in legal armies are um, kids. And so I had actually read several accounts of uh, Colombians or foreigners in the hands of one of these illegal armies in Colombia, because even from the left or the right, there's more than one. I mean, it's a very fragmented war. Um, and yeah, the, the higher ups might be negotiating the kidnapping, but the guys who are actually doing the day-to-day let's say, custodian ro- job are, are just these kids. And they're not sitting there discussing like um, Marx das Kapital or some like, you know, Keynesian uh, liberal economics. They're there just, you know, living their adolescence. And and, um, and many times not a word of, of, of politics is spoken. And so I thought that that sort of vacuum was a very interesting space. It's kind of born out of something real. Um, not to take merit from these movements, but yes, it's it would be uh, it's not completely made up that a kidnapped person, including including a foreign person, would be in the hands of a squad of, of kids in a very remote place because that's kind of the cheapest way to take care of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have a foreigner in your hands, gives you political leverage. You send uh, a squad of your uh, lowest rung soldiers many times kids in a very far off place where you don't need that much protection and that's the cheapest way to um to keep them until either something is paid or political leverage is gained whatever that may be it seems as if also that that landscape is something that i mean it's a it's a stunning landscape in and of itself just being that high up but it seems like it's also something um that spoke to you in terms of how you wanted us to experience these kids. Yeah, you obviously there's a practical, you know, why they would be up there. But I'm wondering though, because it, it seems this film, um, you had used the word ghosts before, and one feels, yeah. and one feels this sense of time and space being gone a little bit on top of this mountain. Well, what I liked about the um being in the top of the Andes mountain range is that it gives the characters a clear sense of being um, small in the in the scale of the universe. You know how you how, how you feel really scale in that in that top of the mountain. Uh, something that's lost when the characters are laid in the jungle and and they lose perspective and lose their positioning in the world. But going back to your question about the mountain, I felt like that was very magical place for me. I grew up in a city high up in the mountains as well. And um, I thought that, that what that does, it's also the source of water, which is kind of the big um, structural kind of uh, conduit in the film. Um, the Paramo, which is a wetland, but very high up at nearly you know 14,000 feet. It's a very unique place. It's otherworldly, but it holds the reservoir of the country's water and that water starts trickling down the mountain um and you're, gaining and you're gaining movie, more your speed your movie follows it <laughs> yeah exactly and so the movie starts following that and also gains speed as you mm-hmm. end up later in these torrents in the jungle and after you go down to those hot steamy torrents of water 
then that condensates go up to those clouds again that you find and there's something very circular about the movement of water right between the condensation and everything you learned in you know seventh grade uh, <laughs> earth science class or something but anyway i thought that following water would be the the kind of the structural element and and something that was really special up there is the way the clouds move so all of a sudden the characters are the mist and the characters are covered in in this ghostly uh just just cloud and 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 it's very tactile it's also very dreamy because we wanted the film to have that that fever dream not for purely aesthetic reasons but because um this isn't colombia's first peace process nor is its first war um, and so there are ghosts of the past there. So I wanted to make sure that we break time, not stylistically speaking, but because we wanted to speak to the ghosts of the past and also um, maybe give you a little a little warnings as to what can happen in the future again because peace is, is quite fragile right now. You had said something before we started rolling I just wanted to touch upon because, you know, from from the vantage point of, you know, someone that just went to Sundance that lives in Brooklyn, you know, yeah. it, I, I can take it one way, but you're about to to go home and premiere this film right. uh, film there before, before by the time people are listening to this, it'll be September when it's out here in the States. But there is an element here, too, where you have to carve out a space, right, that this film can be received by, it, it's, you know, it's going to be polarizing one way or the other, but that it isn't necessarily talking about you know, August 2019, it, it, it has to have a timeless quality. It has to have something that is, is carving out a space where it, it, it can be maybe seen by and accepted because things are so polarized there, right? Yeah, I think film by the very nature of the medium, uh, at least the type of cinema that I'm interested in, generally the time it takes to make it and construct it and build it, you can't refer so much to the news or to the day-to-day -day. there's some thoughts that need to be let's say bigger picture and so um i i started writing this film before the peace before the country knew peace was being negotiated and and so i kind of felt that coming and and it was kind of wishful slinking at the time maybe a little instinct but also just thinking what can happen in in, in this group and and also just Although the country has seen war for so long, I hadn't seen anything on screen that really spoke to me and spoke to my generation. Um, is your and generation, the best way is your generation a little bit more hopeful? Your film's a little. Is, is your is your generation a little bit more hopeful about how how things are going to turn out or the possibility of peace? I mean, the country is very polarized, but I do think that uh, that my generation is is um, is hopeful. And I think there's things happening in Colombia and all sorts of things. Uh, Colombia won the Tour de France lately. It won doubles Wimbledon. <laughs> there's people excited about different things, uh, um, uh, education. Uh, there's a so certain social consciousness, but also this this conflict, this fight, this bloody battle that, that we can't let go of. But I think there's people trying to build. I think there's hope. And that's why the film... It's not really denouncing anything that people don't already know. I mean, the Colombian conflict, I think it's pretty well known worldwide, but it's forcing you into certain conversation. And the best way to do that is through, uh, through metaphor. And I think film has to be subversive. We're talking about a subversive war. I think this film has to be subversive. And so uh, I think uh, that that was the idea. Um, 
the group dynamics here obviously this 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 film is is does have a, a distinct structure it's well structured uh, a lot of thought went into I imagine um, how that screenplay unfolded I, I'm curious though because uh, I also want to talk about your casting process the group dynamics because it seems as if you had discovered your cast it seems like you're reacting to the group dynamic that you mm. created amongst these kids I, I'm wondering um, how much of that was something that you in terms of all these characters and how things played out is that something that uh, you discovered in a unique casting process or was this something um, that you had with your, your co-screenwriter um, laid out in, in, before you had even started that process well, Chris, it's a, it's a good question because I think it's basically both of the mm. things you said. Um, by trying to make an ensemble film, it's always risky because one thing is when you put the camera on the shoulders of one or two characters and you're going to spend all this time with them, you've got a higher shot that people are going to connect with them. When you really try to give meat and bone to 10 characters and try to move them around like a pinballs, then, it, then it's tougher to really make you connect when you're jumping from one point of view to the other. The screenplay always had that idea in mind and always was willing to take that risk. Um, but of course, when we started the casting process, um, what we did is we looked at over 800 kids all over Colombia, and in the end, um, we chose 30. And out of those 30, we took them to the top of a mountain, and we had a sort of like mock military boot camp we did uh, improv and acting exercises in the morning and then some military exercises in the afternoon. Not regular kind of full metal jacket boot stomping because you don't want them to act like a regular army. You want it to be a clandestine army. So they were doing barefoot exercises, carrying weapons, things like that. Who'd, and you, that's, have, who'd you have training him? Did you have? The messenger, actually. Uh -huh. uh, at that point, he was just a consultant that I had found at a farm where they were trying to reinsert former guerrilla fighters who had led uh, laid down their arms and tried to come back to society and i found him there i had him as a consultant because he had been in the guerrilla army since he was 11 years old and he had risen to a very high post in the most combative unit kind of like a navy seals like unit in um a guerrilla army in colombia and in the end he was so good in training them and so intense in his voice and his demeanor that i was like this guy has to play the role of the messenger but to get back to your previous question, what happened was that I asked these kids to sleep together, live together, eat together. I mean, they were living in a bunk-like scenario, military-like scenario. So I could see <coughs> excuse me, how they would react and not only how they performed individually, but how they performed as a group. So really the casting process wasn't one in saying, you're great, she's great, he's great, but rather how good are you together? And so that ensemble casting process was key. And I think those are the foundations of the film. The four or five weeks we spent with them before shooting a frame, just having them spend this time together. How, how isolated are you? Are, is there a town nearby? I mean, the, the film, it feels very isolated. It feels like they're on the top of the mountain. But is there like a, 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 is there a road nearby that you could stage and you can get up there? Or are you guys really just dropped on the top of this mountain? No, we were really out there, Chris. I mean, it was, um, we were staying in... I mean, the only place there was to stay near the set, if you can call it that, was like some woman had opened a yoga studio like an hour away from this place. It was like a retreat place, but she didn't want anyone to smoke, anyone to eat meat, anyone to have a beer. So I was like, how am I going to bring this crew to 14,000 feet up in the air and they can't 
everyone's got to become a vegetarian. No one can smoke, no one can have a beer. I mean, this is going to be a disaster. But in the end, I convinced her to be a little bit more lenient. So we were staying in these cabins mm -hmm. plus some like um, sort of mobile homes that are used for, uh, I guess, when, when people go to remote places for oil uh, drilling and things like this. And we were staying there. And then from there, we would drive um, to the mountain, to this natural reserve, mm -hmm. to this area, which is Paramo, which is this wetland that I'm telling you holds this kind of muddy highland. It's almost like a Tibetan plateau with water. Um, and we were just shooting there. And that place was wild. I mean, the everything changed from one minute to the other. There was no way to project or plan anything. The light conditions kept changing. Um, the sun hits hard, but at the same time, it can get cold and, and humid. Uh, um, yeah, it was rough. Those conditions were rough. Yeah. What about, you create a group dynamic. There's something about these young people. It, it, it seems like a real mix. Um, how much in terms of your camera are you also kind of reacting to them because it's a really interesting use of camera it also has it doesn't feel like normal coverage it doesn't feel necessarily like it's observing you know necessarily continuity of time and space it, it's very poetic often it feels like you're almost kind of like inventing cinema with each frame but i'm curious though how much of that was a kind of a pre-planned pre intention and how much of that is um you know, kind of reacting to what's in front of you and then figuring out how to interpret that cinematically. Well, this is my first time working with Jasper Wolf. You know, my previous film, Porfirio, was done with Emios Bakatakis, the Greek DP, mm -hmm. and we had had a great experience. And now this was something completely new to me. Um, and with Jasper, what we did is we, we basically sat down and we storyboarded and shot listed the film from beginning to end. Um, and this is the film that I had just rewritten because I actually rewrote the screenplay as I was watching these kids interact as to mm -hmm. your previous question, right? Because one thing is what I had written, but when I met the characters and started to see who flirted with who, who um, didn't like the other, then I started to change around the characters and, the, uh, and write for the people that, that were going to be there. But anyway, go back to camera. I think we, we really were... We had shot listed the whole thing. Um, I had a lot of shots already in the screenplay, in the technical screenplay. And then we were, reworked it with Jasper. And then, of course, the idea on set to have this unique location to spend there all day and to have this group of kids was to keep finding and building that language. I think there's a lot of emotion in form. I think there's a lot of tension between the styli stylization of the, of the camera work and of the mise-en-scene, but the faces and the actions the movements of a lot of characters who had never even been or seen a camera a film camera in their lives um and so you were just building between such a natural environment as this mountain or the jungle these faces and their movement which was just so so fresh um and we we're trying to i think first and foremost respect that kind of idea of water of movement and also that kind of pinball feel because um, you had so many scenes with a lot of characters in play at the same time. Uh, and so the idea wasn't just to cover them in any classic way. And I don't even like that word cover. I, th I think <laughs> I th because I, I, I don't know, I think it's very important that that when you create film uh, is, is, is a sort of 
it's kind of like a, a fingerprint. I, I don't believe so much in a style as much as a sort of visual identity. I mean, this aesthetic was right for this film mm. um, because of the amount of characters, because of that sort of wolf pack mentality. And there's something about the wolf pack that's very menacing. And the camera had to had to mirror uh, that kind of that feeling. You talk about the, the landscape changing a lot. It, it, were, is part of it just rolling with it and seeing like, well, this it's giving me this. It's everything up there seems so stunning. Um, or are there times where there's just conditions where you, it just shuts you down and you're just like, I can't, you know, this light, this this, this weather, or is it is, is it something? Because one of the things you're, you're, you're reacting to, right, I imagine you and Jasper are reacting to is not only th- these kids, but it's like suddenly like the clouds are below you and it's like you, you can get a frame that's just like, you know, you have to embody the thing. You know? And then sometimes it feels like they're in this this smoke and there's sometimes there's this late this late day blue and all of it like I have to imagine part of that is is, is kind of rolling with with what the landscape is giving you as well. Yeah, Chris, we basically have to roll with it because you don't know what that top of the mountain is gonna give you. I mean, we had that hour long drive every morning to the top of the mountain and we wouldn't know what we would find up there. And it changes so quickly. And would you, no sw- one's would up you there. switch what you shot in the sense of like this? You know what? Actually, based on this, this is better to do the cow stuff than the marriage stuff. Yeah, we, we, we switch. We basically had backup plans every day. So if something couldn't work, we would jump to something else or we would try to find solutions. Or I would ask myself, why not? Why can't it rain here? Maybe it's better a scene that I thought would be under the sun ended up working in 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 the cover of mist, mm. uh, different things that, that, that it gives you. And, and you, at first, because you've been writing a screenplay for so long, you generally, your first instinct, instinct is to project your desires on the space. You're like, why isn't this, this, or why is it not sunny? Cause I need this. But then you start asking, why not? Why not? Why not? And after that, why not? Then you just jump right into it. But, but the situation, I mean, for the scale and the ambition of the film, um, we 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 really just we just had to give it all because we didn't have the resources to wait around or only shoot at sunset and and uh and or or sunrise i mean we really had to take advantage of the whole shooting day um we had limited resources we had limited time a limited crew and so and how much in, crew did you have up there um we must have had i mean in total with 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 everyone, including including cast, it must have been about fifty five of us. That's not much with a um, cast of fifty. I mean, I'm including the people that yeah. were uh, driving us up yeah. and catering. I mean, it was it was. Um, I mean, for the for the scale of the film and the ambitions, it was just very few of us. I want you know, it's very hard. We're talking about time. We're talking about being on this mountain. We're talking about a relationship with these kids. We're talking about this ghostly feel, and watching your movie it is impossible to remove that from sound and music um and i i before we talk about mika um because what she brings to a movie and we know this from under the skin and we know this from jackie is (coughs) is is otherworldly i definitely want to talk about that but i'm wondering before because she wasn't involved you know while you're shooting and while you're designing this thing, what did you, what, you know, how did you see sound and music playing a role in this? I had worked with um, the same sound designer on my first film, which is a documentary, then my first fiction. She's a Cuban woman named Lena Skenasi who worked a lot in Mexico and she's 
been a great teacher and amazing collaborator collaborator and um like me she likes um in being inspired on what's there on what's natural so uh for example we knew that the film would go from um a greater silence at the top of the mountain with that sort of barren winds and and what's moving there to uh the busier sounds of the jungle so you would grow and add layers as you move along also we had thought about um a lot of um voices that wouldn't be voiceover but they would be ba basically voices and off because you have eight characters around you when you're uh, a foreign kidnapped woman like julianne nicholson is in the film and all of a sudden you have all these voices coming at you because they're encircling you um and so Lena, what she does very well is that she takes uh, what's there, the sounds that are there that you discover, and then she builds off that and stylizes it in a way that seems otherworldly, but it's really born out of what is there in front of you. And that's the same thing that I did with the locations in front of me and with the kids. I mean, they all seem somewhat otherworldly, but they're born out of the physical world. It's almost as if how can we take what's there and push it to... Um, to the border of the fantastic without jumping off, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And that, that was kind of the motto of what we did, and, and, and we were looking at that. Uh, but it's clearly a, a building process. It's layers upon, upon layers. There were some very strong ideas of how a gunshot echoes in the mountain, for example. That's very different than how a, a noise can be muffled in the, in the jungle. Um, yeah, those were those were things we were looking at. Uh, the, how the natural world would also juxtapose the the kind of the the kids uh, and and that wolf pack feel and what they're they're bringing. So, how does one get Mika Leva to work on their film? She's only done two. This is like an incredibly yeah. singular talent, um, and I it, what she brings to a movie is is you know it's 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 unreal. I, I'm wondering, you know. How does that even start? How does that conversation even get, you know, how did, how did you, how did you hook her? <laughs> well, it was actually uh, pretty simple. Um, <laughs> she saw the unfinished cut of the film. And did you sense it? You, 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 this is a conversation that started ahead of time. Yes, yes. I knew that uh, Mika, you know, she doesn't like to come on board on a screenplay stage. She, um, she likes to see the film. I think the, the images, the spirit, the colors are what speaks to her. And so her agent saw it. I wasn't quite sure I was going to get past uh, the, the, <laughs> the doorkeeper there. And, and, and he actually very much connected with it, sent it to her, and she was in the next day. So it was actually very good like that. Um, and then we started speaking in terms of let's you know have a little trial period, see if this works. And from the first thing she sent over, I really liked it. And, and I had my previous film, my first fiction film, Porfirio, didn't have any... Uh, music that did not stem from the source and Mika was actually at first she was like god but I really like your movie without music that was kind of her first reaction but, but then I convinced her that that it did need some um, but I wanted to make sure that uh, although I liked of course what she did with Under the Skin and Jackie this was something very different so we worked on on something that which was um, monumental but also very minimal as opposed to uh, Jackie that has music throughout, uh, Monos has maybe, I think it's 21 or 22 minutes of music in the entire film. So it's actually quite, quite sparse. Um, also, you know, she's, used, she's known for this fabulous string work. And here um, she's using winds 
um, and sometimes incredibly simple. So we didn't have the resources, but also that was the idea of the film, not to have an orchestra when you're talking about uh, kids in a remote mountain place, but rather um, her just blowing into a bottle. Uh, also to play with time, you have um, digital sounds, synthesizers that might come out of like, like a shot of adrenaline coming out of a Berlin nightclub, or you have just a, a simple uh, whistle. And, and and the collaboration with her was great. And I went out to London about two or three times to work with her. And then she came down to Buenos Aires where we did all the sound mix. And that was key, having Lena in the room and having Mika there. And the sound in her music, it's hard to sometimes... Yes. And, and, let, and when she gets intense, you, you, you know it. But there's times where... It might sound like it's part of the sound design and becomes well, that, yeah. part, well, that part was, of the music. Yeah, I mean, the idea was to kind of really make that work. I think, I, I think that that's key. I mean, mm -hmm. I couldn't envision myself working on a, any other way. Having the sound designer and the composer in the room, and um, and then just jamming. And mm -hmm. we did that, and we did that for a few weeks in a dark room in Buenos Aires, and we were jamming, trying to create this uh, identity of sound. Because it isn't, you know, Mika Levy's thing or is it what Lena does, but what is right for this film mm -hmm. and each scene and each moment. And what Mika does very well and, and, um, and Lena does as well is sometimes you go through the film step by step and you think you're making the right decisions. But then you watch the whole and we would sit down, watch the whole thing again. And we would realize here what we thought was fabulous doesn't work or now this area is missing something. And so you're kind of painting, painting, and you're like you're 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 standing right in front of the you're standing right in front of the canvas, but then you have to got to step back and look at it from like maybe 50 yards back, and then and then look at it again, and then rush forward and start changing it up. So we did that time and again to build it and make sure that every moment had that that kind of fingerprint that was right, that identity for that film. I, I I'm very big on that. Uh, I know the film has been. And most people's eyes, they, they, you know, they appreciate the style of it, but I think it's more what's right for, mm -hmm. for those characters, for those topics uh, there. There's a lot of emotion there, I find. When you say jam, are you, are you, has she come with music and then Elena's got, already got some sound? Is it is about like trying different things in there or is it, is it, is it literally sometimes playing instruments? Well, <laughs> well, funny you should say that because, um, I mean, she already, we already had some things we agreed on. So mm -hmm. she brought that over from London and there were certain things we need in Buenos Aires. So we went and found, uh, some cello and some strings in Buenos Aires and recorded that there. Um, and then she had a f some sounds on her computer. So it was a little mix of that. I mean, some things clearly weren't right until the end. And, and we kept looking and looking. And, and we were each other's kind of devil's advocate because sometimes she was happy with something and I wasn't entirely. And then I was, and then she would show me something and I was like, that's totally right. And as soon as I said it was right, she thought it was wrong. <laughs> and so uh, we kept kind of bouncing off each other. And, um, and Lena, the sound designer, was just also very inspiring because she was clearly the most experienced person in the room having uh, done the sound design for, for so many films and also excited with the freshness of what was happening. So, um, so I was the only boy in the room at times, but, uh, but I was able to hold my own. <laughs> um, we 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 and you kind of hit on this before, but we follow the water and we we do end up in in, in the jungle, which is obviously 
uh, very enclosed, almost the opposite landscape. I'm wondering, just kind of big picture, I mean, you, you spoke eloquently about a thought of the water and the mountain and, and, and kind of that, that metaphor. I, I'm wondering, though, but also what, what, happens, is, is in, what happens to this group and, and where this story goes, it, it feels as if that change in landscape also is mirrored in terms of how you want to explore what's going on with this group. Am I wrong? No, you're, you're right. I mean, in, in, in the top of the mountain, there's nowhere, nowhere to escape the light. You know, you're exposed and there was a certain kind of innocence and transparency and openness to the situation um, that is lost under the canopy of the jungle, right? And, and it's distorted. And the position of who you are and where you are is, is, is somewhat lost. And as soon as the characters, um, the victims become victimizers and vice versa, I think that you start having all these tones of gray that, that I think in a way and, and what they do is they mirror my thoughts on a lot of these um, armed um, and legal armies that, that start with very noble causes. And they start because um, they want to change something that they think is wrong or they generally want to do that or they want to help people that need help. And, and slowly those... Um, those desires they start uh, darkening and and that's what happens to the movements from the left or the right in the country I come from Colombia where you have these very noble beginnings and um, they're lost along the way and they also splinter along the way because that's kind of what happens to the group it starts splintering right mm -hmm. and a new group is formed um, in fact that's actually one of the big concerns in Colombia with the peace process is that, yes, you signed an agreement with the main guerrilla group, but some have splintered from that group and now they want to continue on. So um, that splintering process is something you see in Monos and it's a, it's a big fear that people have about the peace process. And how far into the jungle are you? I mean, the movie very much feels like they're walking down this river and they're they're deep. But I mean, what in terms of production is this another one of these um, <laughs> harrowing feats, or is, is there a road that's somewhere near the jungle? <laughs> it, it was pretty harrowing. Basically, it was about um, the city where my family's from, Medellin. It's about a three-hour drive, and then you arrive in this little town where you need a you know four by four on an off-road track for like an hour. And then you walk down a mountainside and then you take a, uh, you go down with the donkeys or mules and then you need a raft. So basically our production team was uh, Colombia's national kayak team, a family of mules um, and these gold miners and legal gold miners that were working the river and knew that river. And so they really are the ones that helped us do what we wanted to do in that in, in that jungle and it are was, you going in and out every day or is is there or did you find are you no i i once i was down there i never came out unless i so came there was, out with so the film. gold miner supplied like almost like a location in a in a, a exactly well they helped us they helped us get things down there and move things around and acted as production hands and then we built uh tents and some outdoor showers and basically it was about uh, 55 to 60 of us just living um, on the river, uh, in tents and, and, and make, and doing what we had to do. And we weren't going to leave until, until we got it done. Wow. 
you can you can, can you, when you watch this when you can you can you what I feel the energy of it, it, part of me assumed it was staged but that energy of that group and that cast being there it one feels it kind of wearing that location wearing on the characters uh, one is there an experiential aspect of what of what the cast and crew went through that is is, is up there on the frame well, that proposal of that energy, that propulsive energy, I mean, that was there from the beginning. That was the idea of the film, that, that, that level of intensity, because that's something that you very much live during adolescence as well, right? Not only in war, but that's why I thought that you had those two conflicts, right? The conflict of adolescence mirrored with the outer conflict of war, uh, living side by side in the film. But yeah, I think everyone that made this film, they definitely didn't do it because they were being paid very well. <laughs> And so uh, Julianne Nicholson or Moises Arias or Pete Zuccarini, who did the water sequences, who's worked in, in Pirates of the Caribbean and Life of Pi and all these things. Everyone who collaborated, including the special effects guy that generally who did, I think he did Predator and he did all these mm -hmm. things. Like everyone, it's because they believed in the project and they did it. Um, for that so that energy i think was contagious and when someone kind of let go someone else would pick up because everyone had their moment in this shoot you know i was carried on a stretcher one morning and and i didn't know if i was going to make it back to the shoot um carried for, carried up yeah up carried up carried up uh, carried up the the mountain by 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 five gold miners uh, because we we thought my appendix was going to burst um jesus yeah and everyone had a moment like that. But then you would pick up and, and go at it again. And it was kind of contagious, the energy. And you know what? Particularly the, the, the cast, I th these young people that they put the film on their shoulders and they didn't want to take it off. They were like, give me, give me, kind of give me the ball. Like, I will make this happen. And uh, at first we thought, well, how do you work with kids? We need a psychologist. We need a therapist. We need all this stuff and make sure that they know that it's going to be okay whether they get it right or not. All that stuff went out the window because the truth is that they wanted to know that it was on them that this worked. And they took that and ran with it and, and it was very forceful. And, and, you know, they would come up to me and they would be like, I want to go again, I can do it better. And, and everyone was like that. And, mm -hmm. and so, um, you know, we shot for nine weeks and we built this kind of Nine weeks world. total or in the jungle? Nine weeks total. Total. So it was kind of split evenly split, yeah. between mountain and, and jungle. But as I said, the foundations were the, let's say, four to five weeks we spent um, at this mock camp, you know, reducing the cast from the 30 to the Was that immediately eight. before production? That was immediately before. We wanted to make so it's sure almost there was part no of it. break. It's almost part of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We wanted to make sure there was no break where they really kind of lived together. Um, What's, you mentioned um, the cinematographer who came on to do the underwater stuff. Um, that is an element of production value. One doesn't usually do underwater stuff in the jungle. For people that don't know this, in Hollywood, it's usually in a tank and, yeah. <laughs> and, and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, and so before I knew anything about the background of this thing, it was, it was startling to me um, the footage that you were able to get. And, I, I, and now in retrospect, I'm realizing it's because it partially brought on uh, this pro who somehow figured out how to do what you needed to do, right? Well, it was a great collaboration. He read the screenplay and Pete um, was on board and, and he knew, of course, that we could you know, never afford his, uh, 
his usual reds. Wait, say his name. Say his name. Uh, Pete Zuccarini. Okay, sorry. Yeah, Peter Zuccarini. Mm-hmm. And so he w- he gave us some of his time, and he brought his housing and his proprietary equipment, and that helped a lot. Very time um, saving. But um, yeah, I mean, those shots were in the film, and we had other ways we thought we were going to do it. But thankfully, he came on board because he were guaranteed that we could do what we wanted because we thought that that tactile element of the film, there's something very um, elemental about the the land, the water, the fire, the sky, the clouds. I thought like all, all these things that you almost want to reach out and and touch. And, and that water element is something that Pete allowed uh, allowed us to do within, uh, within a live setting. And, and it was remarkable. I was very, very privileged to have him on board. I'm leaving this last question till the end. And honestly, I've gone out of my way not to read anything about this. Okay. Because I don't know if it's a spoiler or if this is just something that's up front. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the casting of, of the character, the 15-year-old um, Rambo, who I... And once again, I'm just coming to this from having seen your movie. Who I watched the movie and I assumed was a 15 year old boy, and 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 rewatching it this morning, the pronouns are all he and and, and, and I, I I'm and then and then at and then towards the end of the movie, I start watching it and I start to you know, part of the movie shifts and and that character kind of breaks off a little bit and becomes a little softer in this kind of domestic setting, and I see less of and, and I start and I was like. He, he does look a little bit like a a, a, a a girl, and then all of a sudden their cast comes up at the Sundance premiere, and it's 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 very distinctly a, a, a young woman. I, I'm I'm fascinated by this, um, the casting of that character and your thought process behind. And I apologize, I forget the actress's name. What what is Sophia? Sophia. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit. And I, that was my experience of it. I've now that's that's the total thought of it. And I've been dying to ask you what you know what the thought process was in the casting of that character and and in general handle how 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 you handle gender inside this group. Well, it's a little bit of a spoiler. That's why this is the last question. This <laughs> is the last question. This is the last question. <laughs> For those of you that haven't seen it, don't yeah. listen to me yeah. um, and go and watch and listen after. But basically, it was very organic. You know what happened was. We looked at 800 kids all over Colombia, and some of them live and some of them on tape. And we were looking at so many people all the time that, I mean, you just start becoming gender blind because you start seeing all these tapes. And, um, and then there was one tape I was really attracted to. It was a basketball game, and there were all these boys playing. And um, there was this one boy called Matt who, who I was, who his friends were calling out to him, passing the ball, Matt, Matt, Matt. And I looked at Matt. And, and I was like that, I, I like that kid. And then I found out later for the casting director that um, one of them was that Matt is just a nickname. Uh, Matt is Sophia. And so... Sophia in real life is not non... She, she, she identifies as a woman, right? It's not... Sophia, Sophia basically... Uh, yeah, she identifies as Sophia, to uh-huh. be honest. I mean, she sometimes goes with Matt with her friends, mm-hmm. sometimes Sophia... Um, she kind of likes to be identified first and foremost as a person. Right. But in terms of um, someone that would use the pronouns they or be non-binary, someone that's non-binary. Yeah, I mean, Sophia was 14 at the time, so she wasn't caught these, up with pronouns yeah, yeah. and these things. And I guess in Colombia, that's still not so much part of the 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 vibe down there yet. You know, it's not as progressive. Mm-hmm. And so um, 
And so she was just kind of doing her own thing. And I thought, I thought it was, I thought it would be appealing to talk about gender in a way that it wasn't an issue, that mm. it wasn't a big reveal. It wasn't like at the end, all of a sudden, the character would lift her shirt and has breasts or, 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 or you know, bring down uh, her pants and actually has a penis. It, 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 it wasn't about a reveal. It was just about a sort of um, non-binary experience because the film brings you into this big vacuum of time. You don't know the time. You don't know the place. You don't know whether the group is fighting for so-called leftist ideals or rightist ideals. And there's also a gender question in certain characters. And Rambo kind of incarnates that question. And there's people that experience the whole film thinking that Rambo is a boy. And there are other people that experience the film thinking that Rambo's a girl. Some people switch in between or different things change. And um, some people look at Rambo as a Joan of Arc character. And I, I think it's great how uh, people can experience Rambo as a boy or a girl, but the deeper sensations of the film don't change. And, and I thought that was, uh, that was like a process of exploration. And, the, and, and Sophia, the person, or Matt, the nickname, brought that to the table and that was explored and and Sophia was very cool with it and we ran with it and and we just tried not to add too much mystery to it mm. it was just like it doesn't seem like you are it doesn't seem yeah. like it doesn't seem as if it, it in retrospect when I was I was talking about it and thinking about it with people as I was walking out of the theater I my assumption was that this was just a casting decision less of a, a statement or thinking about gender mm. more just one imagined that this actress embodied that character and what you were trying to yeah, do with yeah, that character exactly more than right, anything Chris. else. Yeah, exactly. I think it was discovering Sophia because someone that had this, you know, kind of soft power to them and embodied a certain loyalty, a certain um, conscience in a way Rambo plays the role of this conscience in the group. And at the end, after this sort of pinball machine of a film that you're jumping in all these different point of views and experiences then that final pinball that you run off with is Rambo and so Rambo uh, I'm glad the way you experienced it so slowly those edges become softer you start paying more attention to Rambo you start asking yourself more about that person because at the end we end with the eyes of that person and you ask yourself what's going to happen to this person where are we going what are they thinking? And it's um, it's in one way a happy ending that uh, Rambo's alive, uh, there's going away, but you also don't know what's going to happen in the future. Right? Um, you've lived in the United States for two years now, um, and not that that necessarily sets up my next question but you know I, I i am wondering i mean obviously right now you're focused on putting this film out into the world you're about to go home and then i'm sure you'll come back here and do the whole dog and pony show here <laughs> when you come back but i'm curious though you know what in terms of uh, where do you see yourself going next and 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 i'm if you have a specific project great but i'm also just wondering you know you're moving into a fourth you know what'll be your next film which will be your fourth that idea of where, where you want to go from here I think the most important thing for me um, is not language, it's not place. It's more what you said about the beginning. It's it's about 
speaking this language that we've been speaking over a hundred years and trying to do something new with it, speaking to those that worked with it in the past, the people that will speak it in the future, and try to find forms uh, that are emotional, that touch us, that reinvent it. I think it's so exciting to take something um, and and make it grow and change it and twist it and find it. And, and that's why filmmaking, that sculpting in time to take something from Tarkovsky is so appealing to me. Um, and I'd like to and I'd like to find uh, different canvases to play. And of course, working in the United States allows you a bigger canvas that, for example, Columbia. Um, and I I I signed a, a a next picture deal with Imperative. Um, and they're doing some interesting stuff, and they've given me a lot of support to to do what I want to do, um, which is you know creating those fingerprints, creating those sound and visual identities that are right for that story and that move people, and 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 in a way that um, you know you might n like it or you might not like it, but you haven't really seen it before, and 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 that for me is exciting. That's that's what I loved about this film. That's what I I I, I loved about this film. It was very inventive. Um, it was one could see different literary um, references. One could see different things, but there was something here. Um, uh, one just has a certain expectation about a film that is spawned from a, a, a modern political and, and, and war situation, and one has a certain sense of what that is. And then and this thing was, um, it, it really is working on its own terms. It feels like it's inventing cinema as it goes. Um, uh, and it's 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 really a remarkable piece of work, and congratulations on that. And in listening to the story of how you you created this thing, <laughs> it seems as if it seems as if in particular um, it, not the easiest in conditions. So it's uh, it's really something that everybody should check out. Well, Chris, I think that the um, that I mean, thank you very much for saying that. And what I, what I think is is key is that you know you hear story 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 about film and, and of course that's important um but the narrative engineering of a film is 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 has to be complemented by a very strong kind of identity in terms of the sound and the image and what's being done and and i think that's very exciting because um film is not you know an illustrated novel uh film is 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 some i think it I think it's got to move, you know, it's got to breathe in a way that, um, that, you know, stands alone from, from, from just narrative. And I don't know, I, I, I'd like us to kind of break those chains. All right. Well, best of luck with this film and thank you for giving us our time. <laughs> <laughs>